Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. John 15, 1 through 9. I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, there may not be more important words for us to pay attention to this year. And not just this year, but God, for for our whole lives. We see you today, Jesus, still alive and reigning and calling people to follow you and to abide in you. So Jesus, we just come to you right now at the beginning of this short journey, at the beginning of this short journey. And we just declare together that we, God, are not content with just knowing about you. That, that we're not okay with just a religiously routine life, checking a Christian box, knowing some verses, and doing Christian things. We acknowledge, Jesus, that your true life is found on the other side of you of knowing you, of knowing your love, of hearing your word, of walking with you. So God, we want to be a people that abide in you. So we believe that this next journey we're going to take here for three to four weeks, God, it's not about learning to abide in Jesus as much as it's about becoming people who abide in you. Not just information, but God, we pray that you would transform us as a community so that on the other side of this experience together, God, we would be deeper in our relationship with you, that we would be stronger in our abiding in you. So God, we ask now, um, as I prepared an, an opening message here, we're here, we're gathered for this moment. It's just a brief moment here on one day of our week, but it matters for eternity. So Holy Spirit, center us in reverence an expectation around you. Holy Spirit, come. God, I, I, I just offer what I have, and I just ask that you would bring grace now, that you'd grace me to preach and teach in a way that's helpful and is honoring and faithful to you. And so, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit, and we ask that you would fill us all with your spirit to hear what you want to say to us today. Would you speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take your seat. 
Okay. All right, so as I said, this is week one of this study that we're going to do here for the next few weeks, exploring what Jesus means when he invites us to abide in him. But we want to get a bit of a running start this morning. We want to take a few steps back in order to really understand the context that this invitation falls in. Let's start kind of at the most basic level, and then we'll build into more detail and practical focus as we go. First and foremost, if you didn't notice, we are open to the gospel of John. First, let's even, you know, let's make this even simpler. We just opened the Bible. And the Bible is a book that has, has, is really more of a library than a book of a collection of different kinds of writings that come out of ancient Israel's history and, the, and, the, and in the life and doings of the early church and the words of Jesus. In the New Testament, uh, the, 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 this section of the library of Scripture begins with four biographies on the life of Jesus, which are really fascinating. They're written by eyewitnesses to his life and of his followers, those that really watched Jesus live his life and listen to him say what he said. Um, and there's, as I said, four of them. And out of the four, three of them are called the synoptic gospels. That is, that they are uh, telling a similar angle, different but complementary. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then you have the gospel of John. The Gospel of John, and if that name comes to mind, it's not John the Baptist, it's John the Apostle, who's known most famously often as the Apostle of what? Yeah, the Apostle of Love. That's right. John, it's believed, was the youngest of Jesus' 12 disciples, which is maybe why he's kind of was, Jesus always had him closest. If you look at all of my kids, it's usually the youngest, Penny, that's like usually next to our leg, you know what I mean? And if you have a group of people, it's kind of the youngest one that you're watching out for. Uh, John was the youngest of Jesus' disciples, called likely around the age of 16, 17. Uh, He was a, a, um, how do we say this? He was a successor of his family's business. Uh, Him and his brother James uh, worked for the Zebedee Fishing Co., which was their dad's name, Mr. Zebedee. Hello, Mr. Zebedee. It's a joy to meet you. Now, as well-off fishermen, their lives, and by the way, Jews in the first century... Their lives were completely transformed when Jesus invited them to be his disciples. And they were more than just one of Jesus' 12. Um, Rather, John was more. He was in Jesus' inner circle, one of Jesus's, we could just say simply, one of his closest friends. There's an account in chapter 13 of, of John and Jesus just hanging so closely and relationally in each other's company, eating food, that, that John is literally leaning upon his heart. It, it speaks of closeness, of proximity, and obviously relationship. Um, as John writes this book, the Gospel of John, this is important to know, that he is writing as an eyewitness with incredible detail. There's incredible detail. Like at one point, John says the number of fish that Peter brings up in his net when he follows Jesus' command. It's really interesting. Um, which, by the way, people that have looked at, at, at the New Testament and called it fiction, that's been a very common thing. Like, these are made-up stories. And C.S. Lewis remarks that to say that about the New Testament, uh, to say that there was some sort of, this is some sort of fictional account that, can, that is filled with these great details of events happening, John says that these apostles would have been inventing a genre of fiction that didn't even exist yet, by the way. 
that didn't exist, that kind of fiction that we have today with, the, with these fine details. This is written as someone who's, by the way, is one of many who have corroborated testimonies around with great detail. And here's another way to say this. John is written uh, by the memory of someone who was there. That's kind of the idea, these, these key details that kind of point out to you. Maybe you can think of like some, uh, I don't know if this works for you, this does for me. There's some big moments of my life that stand out more than others. Like I couldn't tell you if the light was green or red on the way over here. I don't even already remember that. Okay, but but there's moments in my life that are so tense or so or so there's filled with so much moment that, you know, I can tell you like the temperature in the room. You know what I'm saying? They're filled with there's detail that my memory goes to in those big moments. Well, that's John here writing this letter. Now, another important fact about John was he was called he calls himself in this letter, the disciple that Jesus loved. He was the one disciple that was at the foot of the cross when Jesus was being crucified. He was the one disciple that got a front row seat to the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever or will ever see. I think it's pretty fascinating too. I, I, I actually noticed this. A friend, of, a friend of mine, Adam actually, who was just here, pointed this out to me. I never thought of this before. But you know, John was told by Jesus that he was going to become the apostle of love. And, and that's not like because Jesus met him and he's like, wow, you're so loving, you 16-year-old young man full of passion and energy. John was the opposite. He was a son of what, actually? Anybody remember? Thunder. He was the one that's like, Jesus, let's call fire from heaven upon these fools for not giving us access to the city, you know, like a good Christian would. It's like you're closed, you're not open, let's bring down fire on this establishment, okay? And Jesus is like, you don't know what spirit, like that's not it. That's not the kingdom. You're going to become an apostle of love. So what does Jesus, notice Jesus makes that statement, and where does John end up at the foot of the cross? To learn love. And then Jesus puts John through what I think is, in his wisdom, John's school of love. And he says, John, my mother's going to be your mother. And you're going to be her son. There's no way to learn love like the love of a mother and being the love of a son. There's something about that relationship, the relationship between a mom and her son that will produce love in a special, significant, and deep way. So John becomes this apostle of love. That's his testimony. At the end of his life, his sermon is really simple. They would carry him into churches, and he would say, hey, guys, uh, love each other. That's a Christian. Take care. God bless, and amen. See you later. Like, and he's out. That, that became his life and his sermon. Now, it's this apostle, I want to say this, who writes this gospel, standing out from all the other gospels with a unique Focus. I want to say this. This apostle writes the Gospel of John. Remember, one of four biographies. And out of all the Gospels, John's Gospel is the most, listen closely, unique and distinct. It's the most unique. Uh, there, let me give you some examples of this. The uniqueness of it. There's no birth account. There's, there's no baptism of Jesus. There's no temptation of Christ. There's, there's no Jesus healing people possessed by evil spirits or demons. There's nothing of a Last Supper. There's nothing of Gethsemane. There's no cup of my blood in the New Covenant. There's no ascension. There's no parables. That's an interesting fact. A lot of the other Gospels have Jesus telling these wonderful stories, speaking in these short, vivid, and powerful sentences and stories. But in John's Gospel, this is why I love the Gospel of John, which I just remembered this, okay? If you get your welcome bag on the way out, we have a Gospel of John in there for you. Isn't that perfect? So you're like, I want to read the Gospel of John. I want one of those little books. Just say you're newish, and you get one, all right? 
You can read through the Gospel of John. You know why I love it and why it's come to be one of the most beloved Gospels in the New Testament? I think it's because of how it's laid out. When Jesus speaks, it's usually never out of some kind of context. There's some story or or interaction or conversation. Jesus' words in the Gospel of John are couched in real-time events. And you see his word living and active, coming to life in his interactions. Now, the reason why John's gospel is laid out like this and is different than the others is because John has a particular focus. John's gospel is written with a written purpose and intent. It's always nice to know, by the way, why a book of the Bible was written. Let me say this, too. It's also important to ask that question when you're reading the Bible. The Bible is written for us. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for us. 2 Timothy. But the Bible and the books of the Bible were not originally written to us, 21st century, Western-thinking, living Americans. It comes from a different culture and time. And so there's nothing more helpful than to open the Bible. And a lot of people have gone wrong and wanted to throw the Bible out because they didn't ask some fundamental contextual questions about it. It's important to ask those things. And, you know, some books make it harder than others. Some books you're reading and you're like, what is going on? Who is this to? I remember becoming a new Christian and being like, I'm going to go through the minor prophets. That'll be fun. I'm just going to ask God to speak to me. Be careful. Okay? It's like, Lord, what do you have to say to me? I'm coming into judgment. Okay. I just pray that's not for me in Jesus' name. You know? you got to know what you're reading, who it's to, and why it's there. Now, here's the good news about John. John tells us why he's writing us this gospel. Look at John 20, 30, and 31. So before you read the gospel of John, go to the end. Okay, go to the end of the book, and then kind of like when you did in, in school, you go to the end of the book for the answers, then you go back to the beginning. So in John, you go to the end, and here's what John says. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the, in the presence of his disciples. John's like saying, listen... I know that this is not the full catalog of Jesus' ministry. In fact, in chapter 21, has anybody ever, ever read what he said there? He goes, in chapter 21, he goes, if we were to try to write down all the things that Jesus did, he says poetically, we, the world wouldn't even be able to contain the books. This is pre-internet, okay? But the world wouldn't be able to contain the books of what he did. So I'm not here to, to give you everything Jesus gave, uh, Jesus did, but the Holy Spirit inspires John to write in his book, some specific things, including John 15, so that you and I may do two things. John is for this. Number one is that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There's what we believe about Jesus. There's what culture believes about Jesus. There's what they believe about Jesus. Then there's what Jesus says about Jesus. There's what God says about who Jesus was. And that's what you and I have to settle in our hearts. Who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? If, he's the, if he wasn't the Son of God, this is a waste of our time. But if he was the Son of God, if he did rise from the dead, he's worth your whole life. He's worth everything. So John goes, I'm writing you this so that you may come to believe in who Jesus was as God the Son, as the Son of God. And this is really key too. And that believing, it's not just an intellectual acknowledgement, but John has written so that we might step all the way into who Jesus is right now. That you might have life in his name. Here's the good news of Christianity. Who Jesus is, is good news for your life. It affects your life. It affects your day. It affects your future. It affects your eternity. It affects your present. This is John's intent for this book. I've written you these things that you might know who Jesus is, 
Trust him as the son of God. And, and more than just coming forward, checking a box, okay, I believe in Jesus now. No, Jesus came not for you to make an acknowledgement about him, but for your life to be changed by him so that you might have life in his name. Amen? This is why John is written. Now, as John writes with this intent in the book, his approach is remarkable. How is it, or what, what are the focuses, you might ask, in the Gospel of John, that, that John wants to lead us to believe that Jesus is the Son, and, and to truly be able to look back on our life? Like, I want to be able to know my testimony of, of, the, of who Christ is by looking in his word, but also looking at my life, right? This is what he wants for us. And the way that John leads us to see that in this passage is through what are called the seven I am statements of Christ. The seven I am statements of Christ. Um, John contains seven of these declarations that Jesus makes about himself. Again, there's what culture thinks, there's what we think, and then there's what Jesus thinks about himself, so what God confirms and Jesus, in, in, all throughout the Gospel of John, is declaring who he is. And there's a, there's a connection here to who God declared who, uh, who he was to Moses. I am that I am. So Jesus builds on that. And in John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. And here's what you'll find. All that, all that Jesus is has implications for your life today. He's the bread of life, so you can be satisfied in him. He's the light of the world. You don't have to walk in darkness. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. He gives you access to God's family. He says, I am the good shepherd who watches over you and cares for you, gives his life for you. For more on this, read Psalm 23. It's all about Jesus. In John 11, after resurrecting his homie who died, that's a good friend to have around. Hey, do me a favor. Like, if I die, can you just bring me back to life? Is that cool? I'm going to do some crazy stuff. Is that cool? All right, thanks. What a great friend to have around. Would have been nice for me to have some of those friends around in high school when I was risking my life for all sorts of things. Okay. Anyway. Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life. And then here in John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine. So this is who Jesus is saying, about, saying he is for you and me. He's speaking this to his disciples. And he's using here, first of all, with this analogy, I mean, bread of life, I can get that. I love carbs. I love bread. I love all kinds of bread. Just serve it hot. Toasty with some butter, and I'm happy, all right? Wherever you are, give me some Olive Garden breadsticks. Give me a little bit of that whatever goes in the oven from the freezer. I don't care. People, are like, what kind of, like, people eat certain kinds. I'm just like, give me bread all day. Let's get this bread. I love bread, okay? Now, we can understand Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life, because most of us, we understand how satisfying food can be. Nice little pretzel bun on a hamburger. I'm sorry. I'm going to keep going. You guys might remember I'm in the middle of a little journey, a healthy journey with, with Jimmy, so just thanks for indulging me in that moment there. It's a, it was just a reflection upon the past for me. All right. I'm the light of the world. We've all been in darkness before. We can understand that analogy. I'm the door of the sheep, and I'm the good shepherd. Now we're getting to some territory where we're, like, dating ourselves as 21st century Americans. We're like, yeah, I have a golden retriever. I'm kind of his shepherd, I think, you know, if you think about it. I'm the door of the ship. I've given him access into my family. I watch over him. I make him lie down on laminate floor <laughs> pastures. <laughs> All right. The resurrection and the life, we can follow that one. But then when we get here to John 15, um, just like the idea of, of the sheep, we might be 
A little detached from this analogy of Jesus saying who he is for us. Again, Jesus saying who he is for us. He says, I am the true vine. Now, for most of us, detached from an agrarian society, we go to the grocery store to get our grapes most of the time. Uh, This is foreign to us. Now, if you have done some sort of vineyard tour, a little Napa Valley, a little Italy action, Britt and I, after our first year getting married, had our, uh, our delayed honeymoon over there, the, the, the hillside of Italy. Good times, good times. Didn't know what we were doing over there. Just young kids, married in love, running around Italy. There's more to that story. Now, this is obviously what Jesus is pulling from, the idea of a vineyard, of grapevines, very central to that culture, wine being so central to the life of a community in that culture. Jesus' first miracle, turning water to wine. Wine is also a symbol in scripture, grapes that bring forth wine, that bring forth joy. It's, it's a symbol of joy and rejoicing. In our culture, alcohol has come to be more distracting and destructive. But as, as God intends the gift of, 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 of wine, for example, in the Psalms, wine is described as a gift from God to bring gladness, not to bring drunkenness and death and distraction. Uh, one of the big differences, let's talk about alcohol for a second. One of the big differences of alcohol in that culture was you would have alcohol with friends. You drink wine to remember who God is, remember who each other were. It was a a symbol of remembrance and gratitude. It was a part of the meal. It's a part of the the feasts of Israel's history. We're going to remember what God's done. So historically, alcohol was there to remember, where in our culture, alcohol is often used to forget. Does that make sense? To detach, to remove. Uh, It's often used as, as... as an aid to be able to be social. We have to, like, we don't trust in who God made us to be, so we need alcohol to be. It's, it's become all these things the enemy intends it to be. Uh, and so, but in that culture, the image here is so obvious to these first century Jews. They know what Jesus is saying here. When he says he's the true vine, agriculture, they understand that. The vine was the place from which the grapes would flourish, from which life would come to the branches. But more than that, you need to hear me say this. This is such an important piece of John 15.1. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, there was more than an agricultural image here. There was a historical, biblical concept that Jesus was drawing from. And the disciples understood this immediately. Their minds didn't just go to like, oh, we get some good wine from Jesus. He did that in John 2. That's not where they're going. Jesus is speaking to something the disciples understood, that every first century Jew understood. Uh, This idea that historically God referred to Israel as his vine. Listen closely. The people of God God, uh, throughout history have been referred to as the vine of God. Notice this in Psalm 80, verse 8. You have brought a vine out of Egypt, speaking of Israel. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You've prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. All throughout the Old Testament, you have imagery of Israel being called this people that God is seeking to make, make, uh, make fruitful. And in that time, this is how Israel was perceived. This is how every Jew, Jew understood Israel. Israel was the vine. If you want a life of, of faithfulness, and, or sorry, fruitfulness, if you want to flourish, if you want the kingdom of God in your life, you need to attach to Israel. You need to, you need to latch on to Israel. You need to be branched in to Israel. In that first century, all life, covenant, kingdom, and purpose was connected to Jewish temple worship. 
priesthood, the sacrifices. And here's what's the central idea. Yahweh being their God. These are the people over whom God is theirs. Uh, even at that time, too, and this is, my mind, I, I, I read a lot about this, and it seems highly probable, not just possible, maybe likely, that Jesus at this point in his dialogue with the disciples, remember, this is the last week of Jesus' life here. That's what's cool about John. Like, a big portion of it's just the last week of Jesus' life. And he's, and he's like, preparing them for his departure. He's like, I'm out of here, guys, okay? Holy Spirit's coming, so you're going you're gonna to be good, but I'm out. And so as I'm leaving, I want to give you some final words, some parting words, And I think at this point, after they've gotten up from dinner, Jesus has washed their feet, it's likely that it's Passover week, so they're making their way through the temple. And as they would enter the temple, uh, Herod's temple, on the outside of the temple, they would have seen what every Jew always saw, this gold engraving of a grapevine over the temple. This beautiful architecture. And there were grapevines like this all over Israel. There was, that was one of the ways that people could make an offering, is they would bring a grapevine, other nations even. And as they would walk into the temple, it was communicating, this is where life is found, right? This is where life is found, in the priesthood, in the sacrifices, in the religious system. The system is the source of life. Israel, you got to be with, if you can attach to Israel, if you can attach to the religious system, then you can have life. And it's into that culture and context that Jesus says, notice this, I am. Not, not, not some religious system. Not some, not some religious duty. Jesus says, but, but me, I am. Notice this claim, he says, I am the key word here. True vine. True vine. He goes on to describe the life of those that have sought to to attach themselves to something other than Jesus. Did you read it there in verse 6? In verse 6, there's this sort of heavy scripture where he says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and he's withered. This is interesting. And as they gather them, they throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, on one hand, I believe Jesus is speaking directly about Judas here. About Judas. You know, it's possible, listen, to be around the things of Jesus and not be a fruit-bearing branch that's actually in Jesus. You can be around the things of God. Jesus said that's going to be a very common and popular thing, that many are going to come to me in the last day and say, Lord, Lord. I was on serve teams in your name, and I attended church in your name, and I checked the boxes in my name. And he will say, depart from me, for you were latched on to something other than me. That's a religious system. But, but true life is not found in the system. It's found in a person. Jesus says it's found in me. So he's speaking to what I believe is, is Judas's departure here. And more than just the judgment that this can speak of, of somebody who's not in Christ, who lives apart from Christ, I believe more than that, the analogy Jesus is giving here, and you know, it always comes down to your Christology, meaning like how you picture Jesus' face when he says something. How you, I mean, that's why it's important too when you read the Bible, to not just know the context, but know the character of God when you're reading. Because you, if you make God in your image and you read the Bible, you'll be disappointed. But if you understand who God is, if you see who Jesus is, and if you have a proper understanding of Jesus and his heart, 
Jesus isn't going, man, if you don't abide in me, you're going to be burned, bro. Turn or burn. That's not Jesus. He's speaking truth. He's speaking facts. But, but listen, I see Jesus with a broken heart, maybe even looking over your life today. And he sees what's withered. He sees how you've done your best to find life in any and every other thing besides him. And he says to you in love and truth, if you attach to anything other than me, you may find some power for a time, but its end is going to be that of withering. It's not going to produce what you think it's going to produce. And, and look, this, by the way, time out. This is what it means to be human, to be disconnected from God. This is not, we weren't created to, to try to find life in other things than God. That's what's happened. We get that, right? We were created, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. We were created to have life in and through God. For of and through him and to him are all things. It's our sin. It's our brokenness. It's where we've all gone astray that's led us searching for these counterfeit vines. We could call them, another way to say this would be false vines, right? Jesus says, I'm the true vine. Attached to me, you'll find the life you were created for. You'll find the flourishing you were made for. You'll be who God made you to be only in and through me. But having a spiritual enemy, having a sinful tendency, we're drawn often subtly without realizing it to, to latch onto false vines, to put our hope and trust in things other than Jesus, sometimes even in the name of Jesus. Let me give a couple options, and I, I want to say these three, they're just three that came to mind for me, religious vines, worldly vines, circumstantial vines. But in my experience, I've noticed, too, that the enemy who has power, we know that, right? The enemy has power. So one of the ways he'll deceive you is he will give you enough power in whatever false vine you're latching onto to, to, to keep you convinced that this is what you need. But because it's not eternal, it will run out and you'll just keep coming back. Do you know, that? you know what I'm saying? Like your phone battery that needs to replug in. That's kind of the cycle of the enemies. He'll empower a life apart from, from God in a lot of ways. We'll talk about the work of the Father in a second here. But let's just acknowledge maybe some false vines that if we could just start our year. I mean, the best way forward to fruitfulness is acknowledging like you're plugged into a wall with no power. we got to start there. Do you know what I mean? We've got to recognize the tendency that we all have to derive life from false vines, religious vines. I just mentioned a couple there, um, obviously from the nation of, is of Israel, and I think this is relevant to our time today. Um, I think our, our, immediately our mind is to go to things other than God, but a religious vine is, can, can I tell you, there's so many definitions of religion. There's actually, by the way, the word religion was not a, originally inherently bad. In fact, James is like, you have pure and undefiled religion before God is to care for widows and orphans. Now, but when I say the word religion, I, I mean, the, I mean a, a system that's in contrast to the gospel and in contrast to God coming from heaven to earth. Religion is all about getting you from earth to heaven. It's the other direction. It's a system that we, we plug into for meaning even. And here's my understanding of this form of religion in a nutshell. Religion, listen closely is the things of God without God. Religion is proximity to, 
participation in, passion even for the things of God without God. And I didn't realize that this was going to be a false vine for me starting a church, by the way. And I was just talking about this in the back with, with our team. You know, I always thought, man, I want, to be, I, want, I want intimacy and dependence and depth with God. And I always thought that that was going to be on the other side of ministry. That's what I thought. Like ministry, maybe you're thinking that right now. Man, I, if I could just be like Andrew and be in ministry full time, then I'd really be close to God. Remember when you thought that? And for those of us that have served in church or served the Lord or sought to seek our friends or just follow Jesus, well, we find that often it's the opposite, that ministry sometimes is the biggest obstacle to intimacy with God. And serving God can precede relationship with God. And it can become its own idol, seeking to get from that what only God can give me. There's religious vines. You can work at a church. You can be at a church. You can do the things of God without God. And that is a travesty. The only thing worse than not knowing God and having God altogether is to have a form of him without its substance. And Paul said that this was going to be common in the last days, a form of godliness that denies its power. The hardest part about religious vines is we can all fake them. We can fake abiding, can't we? Well, look at what they've done. Look how much they know. Look how present, look how active. Now, don't hear, this is the most, by the way, if you go to church, you'll hear pastors say this all the time. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Okay. Don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? What I'm not saying is that there aren't things that God puts in your life to latch into him through. So you're like, okay, I'm not coming to church next week. Andrew, last week, I don't get it, Andrew. Last week you said to come to church more frequently. I'm here, I'm even listening better. And now you're like, this is, you need God. So, Okay. It's cold in here anyway. Now, that's <laughs> not what I'm saying. I know. I'm saying anything that God has for us together is for the ultimate purpose of more of him. More of him. Not more of us. Not more of, more of our superficial goals. Not, not more of anything than our... Him. Religious vines. Worldly vines. This is the other direction, and maybe there's some people in the room that can recognize this, that you have... You've gone, yeah, I'm over religion. And so here's often the reaction. We find the emptiness of religion. We did, we did the things of God without God, and then we were left empty. And so we assume that that was God. And so we go, well, I don't want God. That wasn't God. That was religion. But we go, I don't want God. So I'm going to search the world and see what can satisfy me. I'm going to try to latch on to what the world has to offer. And just to save you some time, I did it for you. It's empty. But also, look at this verse in 1 John 2, 15 and 17. Do not love the world or things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the source that you're looking for is the love of the Father, by the way. And so we, we, we don't, because we didn't find the love of the Father in the religious system, we go to be satisfied with the love of, of this world. And John's like, here's a heads up. The key word here in this next verse is the word all. Now, in the Greek, the sentence structure of the sentence and the, the usage of that word Greek, it means all. That's it. That's all I have to say about that. I just made that up. I don't even know what that word is in Greek, but it means all. For all that is in the world. Here's, it, here's, here's what it is. Lust of the eyes. Possession. Or lust of flesh, excuse me, passion. Lust of the eyes, possession. And the pride of life, position. Getting more, feeling more, being more. That's the world. That's the, that's the false vine of the world. 
You can get more, you could feel more and experience more, and, and you could be more. By the way, these were the three temptations that Eve and, and Adam were tempted with. These are the three temptations that Christ was tempted with in Matthew 4. Why? Because Satan is not God. God does all things new. He refreshes. But Satan's got the same, he's got the same old tricks, same old temptations. And they're couched in these categories. That must be so annoying to say it. We're like, hey, we got your three things. We got them, okay? You lose. Now, notice this, that those things, key phrase here, is not of the Father. Those things are of the world. That's what the world has for you. But notice this phrase. And the world is, another translation here is withering away. All flesh is grass. It's going to wither. And the lust of it, if that's all you're living for, hedonism, it's going to pass away. But notice this, this is right out of, by the way, John wrote John 15. This is John's own commentary, but he who does the will of God abides forever. The vision there is that of flourishing. The vision there is that of life. You have religious vines, you have worldly vines. You also have circumstantial vines, um, these are really subtle. Like, these are things that we're trying to latch into to find the life that Jesus created us for. I think as early as even like middle school, you know, hmm, my theology has really been uh, developed and confirmed through having children. You, you know, you have humans. Right? These are, they're cute, they're sweet, they're awesome. You name them, you love them. They're humans. Made in the image of God. But humans. And you start to see, you're like, these are humans. And it's harder because they're like, you're humans too. So they got like your humanity on them. And it's like, I'm a human. Um, <laughs> I'm a human. Um, it's really profound, isn't it? And, and as you watch, like you watch even at a young age, just the beauty and the brokenness start to get worked out of being a human in this fallen world. You try to act like there's no brokenness. We could just, we can control them. We can just, just like, but they're still them and they're still in need of Jesus and, and regeneration. And there's going to come a time where the gospel is going to have to come to bear on their soul and life. And, and I remember even as a young kid growing up into, I can remember middle school and such a, you're, you're a child in middle school. But I remember feeling so, growing up and I need life I, what is, and even in middle school you start to try to attach yourself especially if there's a lot of insecurity at home you're looking for something to give you stability and meaning in life so you try to attach to acceptance in that youth social scene and then after school it's like okay let me try to I gotta, people go their whole life trying to find the true vine I'm telling you they go I gotta go to, I gotta go to this school if I can just attach to this school I'll find life then you go, okay, that was great, but now I need a job. So I'm done with school. Now I just, if I could just attach to this job, if I can get this in this place, people always go, if I could just get out of Florida. You're going to come back in a decade, okay? It's better here than anywhere. <laughs> so you go and you get a dream job and you meet a girl. You meet a guy. Oh, if I could just find someone who likes me. This is from my journal, okay. (laughs) 
think as a new Christian, I was just like, God, I see in the Old Testament that you do magic tricks. Do a magic trick on that hot blonde girl. I really like her. She's so Christian. I'm so not. <laughs> it worked. Magic with Jesus. Okay. It's still working. Now, so you go, I got it. The person. I got to get the relationship. You will crush your life and the person in the process if you seek for them to be your true vine. Because you're putting expectations on them that they can't bear. They could never be that. It's often where a lot of relationships go wrong is we start with, we expect them to be what they could never be and what only God could be. So then you move away. You get the girlfriend. You get the house. You get married. You go, I'm, I got to come back to Florida. And here's your true vine. Square footage. I need square footage. The true vine of square footage. East of 95, preferably. North of Deerfield, south of Delray. I'll settle for Boynton, God, if that's what you're... And we're like... And I'm serious... Some of you are in a season of having to trust God for a, a place to live with your family. And, and that desire, which is a good desire, can subtly become your hope. It's not the vine you need. You get the house, and then it's like the, the new true vine is money to keep the house up. And then you go, if I, here's a big one. If I could just have kids. If I could have kids, that's the vine. That, that is where my life will be found in having children. Then you have children. And then you go, Lord, this is where we're at right now. Lord, if my kids could just behave. Wow. Lord, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed for no rain, and it, ra- and it didn't rain. May my kids behave. You hear the, the fer- effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. May they respect me and honor me and do what I say the first time I ask them. Don't back talk and say, Father, you are blessed among men and I will do whatever you ask. Okay? And so, you, listen, do you see the circumstantial, just hamster wheel that life can get you caught in? Always jumping from season to season to season to season, thinking that in some way your life is going to be found under the sun. And it's to you, and it's to me, and it's this morning that Jesus shows up in our presence here even now. He looks at your life, and he says about himself, he says, I am the true vine. Hear him say that to you this morning. It's me. I'm the source of the life you were created for. I'm the one you were made for. I am the true vine. I'm going to invite the team to come up uh, to close us out, to wrap us up with this intro this morning. And as we're wrapping up, I want us to begin to consider what vines we're trusting in this morning. Begin to, you have to name it to tame it. You have to recognize it. You have to speak, you have to see it and say, God, show me. Maybe today it's just, God, show me what other vines I've latched onto for life so that I can turn from them, recognize them for what they've become, 
idols. I can cast them down at your feet. And Jesus, I can run to you. The one who says, come to me. Come on. You tired? Are you withering? I'm the true vine. So today, maybe your prayer is as simple as, Jesus, I want to be in you. In the weeks ahead, we're going to talk about how to do this day in and day out. So that's coming. Right now you're wondering, the series is called Abiding. We didn't look at one verse about abiding. That's coming. But as a foundation, Jesus as the source of life invites you, invites me. This, but, by the way, can I say this? This is what it means to be a Christian. We know that, right? A Christian isn't someone that has it all figured out, that has all the answers, has done all the right things. A Christian is someone who recognizes who the true vine is. And they go, I want to latch onto him. Here, look at these words from Jesus. How cool is this? Jesus says to you and me, he says, I am the vine. I love this. You are the branches. Isn't that awesome? The union, he says, that's available between you and him. Because this vine would go to the cross and he would wither for you. Take on his his own back, he would take on your withering, your life apart from him so that you could have a fruitful life in him. And he says this over us today. I am the vine, the true vine. And he calls us to be his branches. This is the work that God has done for us as people. He's come to place us in Christ. So before we get into any business for the weeks ahead, talking about what it looks like to remain in him day by day, moment by moment. This morning, let's take inventory before God. Let's create right now even a heart and a posture of prayer and connection with the Lord. We recognize that you're here, God. We know you speak through your word. And God, you know the things that we have given ourselves to that have caused us to wither. And we thank you for your grace and your mercy and compassion. You don't leave us withering. But you plant us in you. So Jesus, even now as we have a moment to reflect and be in your presence. We just want to say together, Jesus, we want you to be our true vine. And whatever else has been a false vine, we want to turn from it now as we come to you to be reunited with the truth, God, that we can be in you. So Holy Spirit, come and produce that work as we take a moment to latch on to you. In Jesus' name.